Hello and welcome to Value Driven Data Science, brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting. I'm Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and today I'm joined by Todd Treseder to discuss some of the unexpected risks of applying data science to retirement modelling. Todd is a former hedge fund manager who retired at age 35 to become a financial consumer advocate and money coach. He now runs the popular retirement planning website, financialmentor.com, and is the author of a range of books on retirement planning and investments, including How Much Money Do I Need to Retire? and The Leverage Equation. Todd, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Genevieve. I am a longtime finance nerd. My original training before data science was in actuarial studies and finance. And as a result, I read finance books for fun. And that was how I came across Todd's work. How much money do I need to retire? Sounds like a retirement planning book, but what I found, in addition to some really fantastic advice about financial planning and financial modeling, is one of the best data science books that I've ever come across. Because it turns out that in addition to concepts like asset allocation, there's a lot of data science and data modeling that comes behind retirement planning. And if you get that wrong, the consequences can be catastrophic. And that's something that I really want to look at in today's episode. Before we go on, a quick disclaimer. Listeners should be aware that the content of this podcast is general in nature and is intended for educational purposes only. It does not constitute general or personal financial advice. Okay, with that out of the way, Todd, can you explain to our listeners how you came to write How Much Money Do I Need to Retire? Yeah, so what happened was I started my career from the quantitative side. So I was one of the early pioneers of a quant hedge fund. So that means that we ran everything by the numbers. And so there's two ways that humans make sense out of complexity. One is data and numbers and the other is narrative. And so I've always come from the data numbers side. I'm not a math genius, but I'm extremely intuitive with numbers and I have a really good smell test for bull in proper application of numbers. At the quantitative hedge fund, I was one of the early pioneers of modeling trading systems, which now you've got MIT PhDs doing it. But I mean, I was doing it back when IBM came out with their first computer with the 8088 processor, which of course is a boat anchor now. But I was having to input all my own databases by hand, 10 key by touch, to build out databases to start modeling the financial markets. So that was where I cut my teeth. And you start learning really quick what's valid and what isn't, and what's the proper application of data and what is the misuse of data. Because in the financial markets, you get punished immediately if you do it wrong. You can even do it right and get punished because in the end, what you're dealing with is probabilistic outcomes. You're never dealing with deterministic models. You're only dealing with probabilities. And so you have to become really savvy at what you can know and what is forever unknowable. And so I spent all this time, I was one of the early pioneers of financial modeling in the financial markets, which is, you know, now you see it, these guys are quant traders and they got banks of computers on the trading floors. And there's all this stuff going on back when I was doing it, nobody was doing it. As it turns out, the stuff that worked back then still works today because it's fundamentally true and it's based on basic truths about how the financial markets behave. Correct modeling starts with financial truths and then you bring quantitative discipline to it, not the other way around. You get a lot of people who come in and do math geek stuff to the data 
and then they'll completely blow it. So anyway, at age 35, which anybody seeing the picture right now would see that's a long time ago. I'm obviously a lot older than that now. At age 35, I retired. We sold the hedge fund and I had enough to retire. And that was from compounding the wealth I'd created in the hedge fund. And I started looking at retirement modeling and I was absolutely shocked. I was stunned. For somebody that came from a financial modeling background and from a data background, to look at how these guys were modeling retirement planning was just absurdly laughably bad. It was so missing the nuance and the financial truth that I was just kind of blown away. And so that's when I started teaching. I had I had a financial coaching business at the time. I just was curious, could I teach people how to do this stuff? So I started a little boutique coaching business. And one of the questions that always came up was how much money do you need to retire? And I'd had to figure that out when I sold the hedge fund. And of course I did it in a completely different way. And so I created this little pamphlet, which was like the grandfather of the book that is now published. And it went through multiple iterations. It used to sell back when we sold PDFs online for $99 or something. You know, first it got passed around a lot. Then I decided, oh, people have enough value to pass it around. I'll do it as a PDF. And it was sold for a bunch of money as PDFs. And eventually Amazon came in and took over the book market. And so then it dropped to a $9 book, even though it had been through 10 iterations and was infinitely better than the original PDF. But that's kind of the genesis of it was when I had to do my own retirement planning and figure out how much money was enough and how do you convert assets in a volatile market into an income stream you won't outlive. There's just so much stuff that people get wrong. And so again, I just came at it from a very different viewpoint, which was not, I'm a broker trying to sell you assets. I came at it from a guy that had a numbers background and a model building background that had been tested in the financial markets to where I could smell out the flaws. And so that's where it all came from is that that's kind of the history Genesis story. One thing I thought was really interesting when you were talking just then was your comment of how you need to start with the financial truths and then move on to the quantitative truths. Yeah. Because that's one of the principles of data science. You're meant to start with your domain knowledge and then move on to your model. See, I didn't even know that because I'm not a trained data scientist, right? I had to learn that the hard way. So go ahead, tell me more. I think that's where a lot of the data scientists fall short. The best data scientists are the ones who started with their domain knowledge in whatever their discipline might be. I've spoken to a number of people, both on this podcast and elsewhere, about the water industry. The best water data scientists are the ones who started off as engineers in the water industry and then built models from that. And I see that in what you're saying here. But a lot of data scientists take their quant skills and then think they're universally applicable. Yeah. I actually, in my community, I call it the engineer's fallacy because I have all these really high-end engineers. Like I'm thinking of one guy right off the top of my head. He's a high-end Google engineer. He's one of the, one of my clients in my wealth building community. The engineers always make the same mistakes right off the bat. They come in with all their engineering training and they go in, they optimize models based on the data that's available. And I'll say, you can't do that. It's not deterministic. You have to understand the limitations of the data and what it can tell you, what it can. And so the correct way to do it is you start with what are financial truths. And then you look at the data and you build algorithms and you say, within the limitations of the data, can I build an algorithm that will adapt to the known data, but then logically will also adapt to the unknown data that will occur at some point in the future, right? Because you only have so many regimes, so many economic regimes, only so many types of things that have occurred within the data sets that we have. 
But there's also other economic regimes that can and will occur in the future that aren't built into the data sets. There's an art and a science to the whole process. The science is working with the data you have to prove out your theories based on the data you have, but you can't go the other direction. You can't just start with data and say, here, let's mine the data and come up with an optimized model and an optimized set of parameter sets for a given algorithm to profit from this data set. You can't go that direction. You have to start from the other side and say, what are the financial truths? How do financial markets behave? And so the great example of this foible, the, this mistake, and it's a huge mistake, is long-term capital management. So in the middle 1990s, long-term capital management was formed. They had 17 PhDs and Nobel laureates on staff. They had more data science and math skill than most university math departments have on staff. And they were out of business in four years. They started, they went huge because they were successful right off the bat. And then as soon as the Russian debt crisis hit, they were suddenly dealing with out-of-sample data. They didn't have any data for anything to do with a Russian debt crisis. So they hit out of sample data. Their models did not adapt. They were not designed to be adaptive. And so as soon as the out of sample data hit, it was a valuation-driven model of pairs trading. And so as soon as the pairs diverged, which they're going to do in a default crisis, the pairs that they would normally trade diverged. So their model said, trade more, trade more. And so they went bigger and bigger and they just compounded their losses geometrically when they should have immediately cut capital losses, you know, to conserve capital. Cause that's again, in the geometric growth, the, the asymmetric growth of compounding wealth, right? There's math laws that govern how wealth compounds and it's asymmetric. And so one of the first rules is you have to cut your losses. And that's not Todd's opinion. That's just a math truth of how wealth compounds, right? And that's built into all models that are successful long-term you have to know how to control risk. Well, they did the opposite and they just blew up like fabulously. It was such a huge blow up that it required government intervention because what happened, they were such a big player because they were such a big profile firm and all these big names and big brands on staff that money threw at them. So when they blew up, they got so big, so fast that they were actually an influence on the markets. So then the other thing they didn't have in the data, which was just beauty, right? Is all the traders knew what their positions were because the models were known. And so everybody traded against them and multiplied their losses knowing they had to unwind the positions. Now, of course, none of that's in the data, but anybody that's in the financial markets knows that's what's gonna occur. That's how the markets behave. So these are financial truths, right? This is how the markets work. You have to have the market savvy first. And then what you do is you bring the quantitative discipline behind it to deal with the human foibles, the human errors and judgment that occur because we're emotional human beings. We make decisions emotionally, not rationally. We'll rationalize them and support them, but our filters in our brains will logically pull the data and the information that supports our biases. So you build algorithmic models based on data to create discipline and reinforce, but they have to be built first and foremost on financial truths. And one of those financial truths includes risk management, but it also includes so many other things they failed at. What are the most important financial truths when it comes to retirement financial planning? Oh God, where do I start, Genevieve? That's too big of a topic, but they're all over the place and you build a knowledge of them with experience. But having me pull them off the top of my head, I'm not going to be able to just throw them down like that. One line that really stood out to me in your book was statistics don't work when you're a sample size of one. I really love that line because 
I think a lot of data scientists forget that the vast majority of the techniques they're working with are based on averages. So once you get down to a sample size below a certain point, everything's obviously going to fall apart. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, that's one of the huge mistakes in retirement planning, right? Is they'll talk about average results and average life expectancy and average this and average that. And yet for every human being, they're a sample size of one and they have one life. So they don't have a mathematically or statistically derived outcome. And so you have to play your probabilities and your risk management completely different unless you slough off the risk via things like insurance, right? Insurance is where they're increasing, they're taking and pooling a large data sample into a statistically valid sample size, and then they profit from a percentage of it, right? So that's essentially what life insurance is. The actuaries, well, you know this as a former actuary, they'll figure out what the pricing is on life insurance. And I'm just going off of standard life insurance, right? I'm not getting into whole life, which it greens all kinds of complication. They'll figure out life expectancies and probabilities, price out the life insurance. And then on a large pool of people, statistically, there's a profit margin involved. Plus the life insurance company then has the float on all of the premiums that are paid on the policies, which then they can compound in the background. So they have a profit on the policy and they profit on the float. And that's one of the reasons they're one of the most profitable companies out there, which is why you have people like Warren Buffett and his mentor before him built their investment management companies wrapped inside an insurance company. So they wrap the investment management inside because they're building wealth off the float of the premiums. It's statistical, but in terms of you and me, I can't plan my retirement the same way. And here's another thing that's going on that's absolutely fascinating in retirement planning. As we speak, there's an absolute biotech revolution going on that's just accelerating. And the insights that are already coming in in terms of longevity and aging science is just now beginning and it's growing geometrically. And the expected lifespan is for even me at 62, as we record this, is probably much, much, much longer than what has historically been true for any expectation that we would have in retirement planning. There's already multiple models of expanding your expected lifespan by 10, 15% individually. And on mouse models, they've combined them for a 50% life extension. This is already done and they're just at the starting point. So the implications for retirement planning are enormous. And that comes back to the sample size of one. You could go through and probabilistically figure this out, but one of the risks everybody takes is life expectancy. And so that varies in ways that don't even fit math models, right? Because you have to understand what's going on in the world around you too. And I mean, with a life insurer, if one person lives to 105, they don't care because, well, if everyone else has died at age 75 or whatever the life expectancy is, they've got their money. But if you personally live to 105 and you haven't made proper plans, you're stuffed. Oh, yeah. And that's a conservative number, I think. So anyway, this is, it's really fascinating stuff when you dig into it. When you start understanding like the limitations of what's known, what's forever unknowable, what are the current developments? What are deterministic models? What can the data tell you? What does the financial truths tell you? And you start weighing all these out. You have to really think through it. There's a lot of nuance to it. And yet it's taught so simplistically. 
For those listeners who haven't come across a traditional financial model for retirement, can you give the listeners an overview of how financial modeling is traditionally done? Traditionally, what you do, and I'm going to say this sarcastically, right? So you'll hear the sarcasm in my voice, but traditionally what you do is you work a lifetime you know, to age 65 or whatever the retirement age is, right? So you work a lifetime to 65, you have your career, you scrimp and save to save a certain percentage of the money you earn. You put it in tax deferred accounts and you hand it to your genius financial planner who has this magical asset allocation formula that's going to give you a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And then at this inflection point, called your retirement age, you suddenly go from earning in a productive life where you scrimp and save, and now suddenly you're doing nothing. And now you're in this amortization equation off of your savings. And the magical asset allocation is going to provide this safe withdrawal rate that has been actuarially determined from past history. But unfortunately, that's usually US history, which is the prom queen of the economic world for the data period over which it was analyzed. And that same data does not apply to any other country. And the safe withdrawal rate for the US fails on every other country and on and on and on. I mean, I could just go in circles on this. And yet that's what's done for probably 99% of financial plans out there. Now, here's what they'll do, right? Is they'll come in and they'll say, oh, but we're so smart. We're data scientists and we've got the cutting edge. So we're going to bring in a Monte Carlo simulation. So what's a Monte Carlo simulation? I mean, you know, you're smiling, but I'll just, I'll just kind of ramble it for a second. And again, I'm being intentionally simplistic and sarcastic to make a point. There's more to it than what I'm saying, right? But I'm trying to drive home a point here. And so Monte Carlo simulation is the randomizing past data or the randomizing data entirely based on certain statistical assumptions. And they're trying to create a Monte Carlo distribution of your risk of ruin or success. And ruin is defined as living longer than your money and success is determined as having more money than life. And so they'll do it as a Monte Carlo simulation. But again, now you've got to come back to assumptions and financial truths. Is data random? No, it's not. Okay. Volatility clusters. Okay. And that's a, you asked me for financial truth. So there's another financial truth. Okay. Volatility clusters, both your largest winning days and your largest losing days are all below trend line. They're all in bear markets. And so, you know, volatility rises during bear markets, correlations of assets all rise during bear markets, correlations rise towards one. These are basic financial truths. And so if you randomize data in a Monte Carlo simulation, guess what you're doing? You're violating financial truth. That's not actually the way markets work. So you're ignoring the autocorrelation. Yeah, there's serial autocorrelation in the data at one time frame, And then there's also mean reversion at a longer time frame, they both coexist within the same data set, but they exist in different time frames. So that's why, like, valuation investing is valid. So, Warren Buffett's model is valid. Basically, valuation investing is a fancy term for mean reversion in the data. Only there's fundamentals behind it that help you determine when you're finding a value, et cetera, et cetera. But you can even take in terms of a mean reversion data, there's, there's valid models that look at assets that have declined 90% or more. And what are the probabilities of the rise over the next five years and things like that? They're very well done, right? So you can do it as a simple mean reversion model, or you can bring in valuation criteria and suddenly you've got that. But that exists in one time frame. Serial autocorrelation exists at a much shorter time frame and is tradable using trend following models. And so there's these different models that exist in different things based on different principles 
in the data, which are really financial truths. So that was a bit of rambling. Did I hit your question? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, what you're saying, I find it hilarious because when I was doing actuarial work, Monte Carlo simulations come up all the time. And that was what I loved about your book. It's basically taking everything that I've learned and making me realize, yeah, this applies at an insurer level, but it does not apply at a personal level. Correct. Yeah. And so I don't want to be excessively belittling. I was being playful to make a point. They aren't totally useless. They're part of a whole picture of knowledge. What happens, what goes wrong is when people present things as truths, when they're just a piece of understanding of an idea. So Monte Carlo simulations have value, particularly if they're done well and people understand the limitations of them. They have value to portray risks and probabilities if you understand what they're doing, where I have a real problem with them, though, I'll give you I'll give you client examples. So let's say we're coming into the 2021 top or we're coming into the 1999 top or coming into a period characterized by high market valuation. So you can measure it as CAPE ratio, which is cyclical adjusted price earnings ratio. You can measure it by any number of models, right? Because ultimately the value of any asset is discount present value of cash flows. And there's a variety of models that will discount those present values of cash flows into different forms. And they all come up with highly correlated results, right? So I'm not going to hang up on the model. But you come in with these financial models and they'll show extreme high valuation. Now, we know a financial truth is all major bear markets in all extended periods of non-performance in the markets are preceded by a period of high valuations and or record low interest rates. Combination is particularly lethal. And so if you come into a period of high valuations, if, if you look at simulations of safe withdrawal rates without Monte Carlo, you'll see that all the lowest periods follow periods of high valuation. Why, of course, because volatility clusters on the downside and the precursor is the high market valuation. These are all financial principles, financial truths. And there's reasons why they're true that we can get into, but they are truths, okay? They're how the financial markets work. It's how pricing works in the financial markets. It's not random as commonly taught in academia. It's just not perfect. And that's why you can make it look random with improper use of statistics, so anyway, I would have clients come to me at these periods of high valuation and they'll say, well, my financial planner says I'm safe. There's only a 5% or 7% risk of failure using these advanced Monte Carlo simulations. And I'll turn around and say, well, did your financial planner tell you that you happen to be sitting at the exact precipice of that 5% data set? In other words, you're almost 100% risk of failing because of the time period and the market characteristics you're in. And they'll be like, no, I don't understand what you're talking about, you know? And so then I would explain it and they go back to the financial planner and the financial planner wouldn't know anything about it. You can't look at a 5%, 7%, 10% risk of ruin on a Monte Carlo simulation and determine that you're safe because those periods of ruin exist. You're a sample size of one and certain situations precede those periods of ruin. And so you could actually have a 20% risk of ruin but you could have a CAPE ratio that's in single digits. Your risk of failure, even if your numbers show as a 20% of ruin are probably close to zero because you've got risk management in terms of valuation that says that none of those probabilistic outcomes are likely to occur. You're more likely to occur at a very high safe withdrawal rate 
much higher than you're actually forecasting. You're actually going to net net build wealth, even though your risk of ruin is higher than the guy that had 10% or 7% risk of ruin, but he was at a high valuation market. You know, again, you have to start with financial truth. You have to understand what the data can tell you, what it can't, and you have to understand how to work with all this stuff intelligently. It's just like you said, it's not, it's not commonly taught. What I'm getting, I mean, if you're saying to someone, the Monte Carlo simulation says that 95% of the time you'll be fine, 5% of the time you'll be ruined. The implication of that is that it's like a lottery and one ping pong ball is drawn out that says ruin or success completely at random. But what you're saying is that there are circumstances associated with those 5% and circumstances associated with those 95%. And you can have a good idea as to what's more likely, a success ping pong ball or a ruin ping pong ball. Partially correct. There's a nuance to what you said, though. It's even worse than that because Monte Carlo is randomizing actually data usually. Sometimes they'll build random data based on statistical probabilistic outcomes and statistical volatility and things like that. They'll actually build random data. A lot of them just randomize existing data. If it's randomizing existing data, then yeah, pretty much. But again, the data isn't actually random. And so it's a sort of a fundamental flaw in what's being done. So there's nuance to what you're saying, but it's really close. It's really close to accurate what you're saying. And when ruin does occur, how bad is it? Are we talking just out by a couple of thousand or ha people having to go back to work in their old age? Yeah, ruin is defined as you run out of money before you run out of life, right? That's that's what failure would be in that. And so the way it's worked that I've seen it in practice is usually once people are down and this is another flaw in like the whole modeling thing is these, these models are run out in perpetuity, usually 30 years. The problem is that's not how it works in real life. Because if you, let's say you retire at 65 and five years in, you're down 50% or you're down 10 years in, you're down 50%. I don't know anybody that's not going to change their spending and change their lifestyle. If you're relying on that nest egg and half of it's gone in the first five or 10 years, you're going to cut back. You're going to change how you live. You're going to change everything. And so risk of ruin has sort of this amorphous thing. Like they define risk of ruin mathematically running out the full 30 years. But the way it works in practice is a person's entire retirement lifestyle gets changed because they have to adapt to try to protect what they have left. And they'll change asset allocations. They'll cut off the risky side of the asset allocation. They'll make all kinds of adjustments. Some of them smart, some of them really dumb because it's frightening. If you're completely dependent on the money and you have no additional income coming in and you lose a big chunk of it, I don't care what the data tells you. You're going to act a specific way reliably. And that's another financial truth. Yeah. See, that's what I said is like, you'll get them out of me as we talk, right? You'll just keep hearing them over and over again as we go through it, where the modeling doesn't match financial reality or human reality. You're really dealing with a couple different things here. You're dealing with the reality of humans and how they behave with finance. You're also dealing with financial markets and how they behave statistically and how humans work within the financial markets. There's like, there's kind of layers of just experiential knowledge that's in there. And then you bring in the models and you understand what the modeling can and cannot do. And again, I'm not trying to poo-poo it. I, I, I mean, I am a model junkie. You can see it in my books. I'm a total model junkie. They're great. I'm a quant. My whole background is quant as applied to finance, right? But you have to be careful. And again, where this all came from 
was when I ran the quantitative hedge fund, it was called market math. That was the name of the fund, market math. The whole thing was done mathematically. And so if you're wrong, if you have an assumption and you do something wrong, the markets punish you by losing money. And so you learn very quickly what works, what doesn't, what the limits of knowledge are. So you've just gone through how to do it wrong or how to do it less well than you could. How do you do retirement financial modeling right? Oh, boy. So I don't want to pitch my course, but like I have a course called expectancy wealth planning. Okay. So when you understand financial modeling done right, it starts with two equations. Okay. I called it expectancy wealth planning for a reason. And I had another course I haven't built it yet called expectancy investing. The reason they're both started with expectancy is your wealth compounds according to mathematical expectancy, which is probability times payoff. So it's really two equations that govern your wealth growth and govern your financial outcome in life. It's mathematical expectancy, which is your growth rate, and then future value, which is your growth rate times time. So within that, you've got a set of variables, right? So you've got you've got time, you've got the capital or how much you save, and then you've got your compound rate of growth. And then within compound rate of growth, you've got basically what is probability times payoff. And again, I'm simplifying it for the audience. The math is more complex, but to get it in verbal form so we can work with it, essentially expectancy is probability times payoff. Now, the problem for most people is they think in terms of probability. What are the odds that something's going to happen? What is the likelihood, I should say, that something is going to occur? Is the market going to be up or is the market going to be down? So to do it right, you have to weigh in the thing that's not intuitive, which is the payoff equation. And that's the thing that most people miss. And as it turns out, the payoff equation is absolutely critical to how all this works. So conventional finance tells you to ignore volatility. They tell you that interim volatility is not important. That's absolutely false. It's provable mathematically. And then it's also provable if you look at the distribution of returns of both systems and the markets. What happens is large volatility literally determines the distribution of returns. And the distribution of returns determines proper strategy. And so what you want to do is you want to understand the payoff equations. Let me give you a, a little bit of background piece I, I got to fill in. I define investing as putting capital at risk into an unknowable future. Really critical that you get in your head that the future is unknowable. All the financial media is going to be filled with pundits telling you what's going to happen in the future. It's all nonsense. Ignore it. Nobody knows what's going to happen in the future. You can be right a lot of the times, but you can't be right often enough to put capital at risk. And all those things are provable. you know. And I have examples in my writing of things like I used to trade commodity futures and the Chernobyl blowup occurred. Nobody knows the future of a nuclear meltdown. If they did, it wouldn't happen, right? A nuclear meltdown is a, no, a noble occurrence. All the markets went lock limit against me one day overnight. That's an unknowable future. You have to know how to manage risk in those inevitable outcomes. You know, Ronald Reagan got shot while I was managing money. Presidential assassination attempts, not a knowable future. And the list goes on and on and on. If you're going to be in this game long enough, the unknowable future is going to bite you in the rear. So you have to manage the extreme tail of payoffs and you have to know how to do that. The thing about putting capital at risk into an unknowable future is the probability is not knowable. If your growth rate is determined by probability times payoff, then you're really dealing with the payoff equation as the noble, manageable outcome. And that's contrary to everything taught in finance. Everything taught in finance is about how to find a winning investment, 
right? Everybody wants to know the, the 10 best investments for 2024 or whatever it is. Think of all the headlines you see in the magazines and in the media. And when really the game is defense, the game is defense. It's in the payoff equation because that's the manageable part where you can tilt the growth rate by controlling the losses and maximizing the gains. And so it's completely opposite of what's commonly taught. How do you even know what the payoff equation is? You can only manage for the loss. You never know, right? You can manage the loss, which tilts the outcome of the payoff equation. So you can basically put in some form of insurance that limits your loss. Is that what you're saying? That would be one example. So basically the way I teach it is risk management is the game. So let's do a sports analogy just to make this intuitive, right? Because we get into data, we get into finance and people get lost. Whereas sports, everybody has a favorite sport, a favorite team sport. And so in your favorite team sport, what team wins the national championship? Is it the team with the world's greatest offense or the team with the world's greatest defense? As it turns out, it's neither. Usually the championship team is in the top 10, 20% in both categories. It's usually not the top at either offense or defense, but it's really great at both. As it turns out, that's the game you got to play in investing too. It's true for any competitive endeavor. If you've got a really great defense, what that means is they don't allow many points to the opponent. So the opponent doesn't put many points on the board. That means your offense doesn't have to score as many points to create a positive outcome. Not only that, if the defense is really good, that means the offense gets, they control the ball. The defense controls the ball by being really good. That means the offense gets more attempts at goal. They have more time in offense and they have more tries on goal to score. And so the combination creates a consistent win. It's a reliable win. It's the combination of a viable offense. In other words, an offense that has a proven positive mathematical expectancy doesn't have to be the best winning strategy. It just has to be reliable through all economic regimes. And then you have to have a bulletproof defense so you never have large points scored against you. In other words, you never go through a drawdown that violates the asymmetric math of how wealth compounds. So basically, you invest sensibly so that you're going to get a reasonable return that's going to beat inflation. And uh, okay, no. no, you have no. to manage risk. You have to have a viable offense that beats inflation. So you're close there. I just got hung up on the sensible because most people would think of sensible as like a cliche diversified portfolio, blah, 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 right? It's going to vary for every economic regime. This is another financial truth. There's decades where there, you can get decades long where bonds outperform stocks. You can get decades long where stocks outperform bonds. You can get decades long where gold outperforms both. You've got really a handful of major asset classes that you're working with. You're dealing with bonds, gold, commodities, equities, both international and domestic, both for bonds and equities, and real estate and cash. Cash is the missing one a lot of people don't understand. So like cash can be in a bull market because cash is a relative purchasing power equation. People say, oh, cash is trash, right? But if everything's correlating to the downside, then implicitly cash is in a bull market because its purchasing power is increasing relative to all other assets. So you have to understand like there's a financial principle that I'm sharing with you again. You asked for all the financial principles. I said I couldn't do them off the top of my head, but they'd come out as we talk. And so here's another one, which is, most assets will correlate to the downside during a big bad bear market. Usually one will not. 
and it depends on the type of bear market. In a deflationary bear market, bonds will be the rising asset because the government will cut interest rates, which will allow bonds to get into a bull market because they're trying to, trying to fight the decline. In an inflationary bull market, it's usually either commodities or gold that is the rising asset. Bonds will get slaughtered. That's what we saw in the 2022 decline. Bonds got slaughtered along with stocks and everybody was oh so surprised. Well, it's happened in history before. There's no surprise. They just haven't seen an inflationary bull market for a long, long time. It's been decades. It's a fundamental regime change. Like the way I teach it at my website for my community, I call it epical change. The investment epic changed. We're in an inflationary environment. And so the rules of the game change. The financial truths are different. So everybody's betting on a bond stock diversification. And suddenly they correlate to the downside and they're shocked. They shouldn't be. That's what happens in an inflationary bear market. And there's times when neither goes down or neither holds up, and that's when cash is king. So cash is increasing in relative purchasing power of the other assets, even though cash itself is only treading water. And so once you understand the major asset classes and how they move, then you can structure a portfolio for regime change, and it can be done statistically with validity. It doesn't have to have forecasting ability or market insight or anything. It can all be done with statistical validity. So basically what a lot of the financial literature says is buy a diversified portfolio young, leave your money in it, and then wait 30, 40 years and everything will be fine. But it sounds like you're <laughs> it, saying- It sounds a lot like my cynical uh, statement about give the money to your financial planner, say, save and scrimp, give the money to your financial planner and his magical asset allocation will give you a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, right? You just said the exact same thing. And you're saying that that doesn't work and that you basically ah, have to adjust for the circumstances? Okay. I'm not saying it doesn't work. It's valid in the sense that it has a positive mathematical expectancy. So it's valid. However, it takes an entire lifetime of saving and compounding over full market cycles for you to realize the benefit. It's not an efficient path to the goal. Where they're correct is that they're citing a valid strategy that anyone can implement. Where they're wrong is they're saying it's the one and only solution that's valid. It's not the one and only solution. There are other solutions that are more efficient, and more effective. but. Are they wrong? No, they're not wrong. If you do what they say over an entire lifetime and you're willing to wait till your old age to have your pot of gold, then fine. But if you would like to retire earlier than old and you'd like to have your lifetime to enjoy your money and you'd like to have greater consistency in your financial performance and you'd like to have a higher safe withdrawal rate, roughly double what standard financial advice offers and you know all these things, I mean, they make so much more efficient path to your goal and so much more reliable. So they're not wrong. I've never said buy and hold's wrong, and I've never said traditional financial advice is wrong. You can still get the outcome as they promise you. It's just not smart. But it's easy to market to large quantities of people Bingo. and to write books about. So what I've explained, so like, you know, my community is a niche community. You know, it's never going to have broad appeal because it requires learning the stuff and understanding it but it way represents reality. And I mean, people are becoming financially independent in my community regularly, and they're getting the results despite the economic difficulties because they understand what they're doing. So it takes effort to learn it, but if you're interested, it's well worth the effort. You get paid for that learning. It's knowledge that will actually pay you. 
it's not for everyone. What I teach, I teach an idea called level one versus level two knowledge. And you probably run across this in, in your profession. So level one knowledge is characterized as a simple narrative that everyone can understand that is closest to the truth, that it's supported by a decent amount of data and gets broad appeal because it's simple. And so there you go. There's buy and hold. There's conventional financial advice in a nutshell. Okay. That's level one knowledge. Then there's level two knowledge, which takes into account all the outlier data, all the data that doesn't match the conventional wisdom and is largely ignored or discounted by the conventional wisdom. Things like ignore volatility, ignore the drawdowns. You have to buy and hold for the long-term. The reason they say long-term is it's baked into the cake of the design of the model and how financial markets work. It requires 12 to 20 years based on whatever your portfolio construction is, it varies with the portfolio construction, to realize a positive mathematical expectancy from a conventional model. And that's because of the source of returns of the model. Again, it's just a financial truth. It takes that many years in order for the change in market valuation to mean revert, while either the interest on bonds and or the dividends and economic growth of stocks compounds in the background at little tiny incremental numbers consistently creating that upward tilt of the equation to eventually overcome the change in market valuation. That's why it takes 12 to 20 years to realize the positive expectancy. That's why they say you have to you have to have a long-term outcome. Whereas you can take other models that have a positive expectancy in two to three years reliably through all economic regimes. So there's other ways of doing it that are more efficient and more effective. It just depends on what you're willing to commit. If you want a super simple passive approach that anyone can understand, then you've got a level one understanding. I mean, a great example is physics, right? We had uh, Newtonian physics, but then there was all this outlier data at the extreme ends, right? The extreme small, the extreme large. And then out of that arose relativity theory and quantum theory. We had to develop more theories in order to account for it and take it to a level two understanding. So go ahead and try to fly a rocket ship to Mars on Newtonian physics. You won't get there. It requires a more advanced understanding. That's because the advanced understanding matches reality. It's more accurate. That's level two understanding. What I was thinking when you're saying this is with financial knowledge, if you go to the airport and walk around the bookshop, there are so many personal finance books in the airport bookshop. And the sort of finance knowledge you're going to get in a book that is sold at the airport bookshop, by definition, has to be level one knowledge. Exactly. You, you have to get level one because it's the only thing popular enough to sell at the airport bookstore. They will never sell my books there unless something very strange happens. And that's why, you know, when I came across your books, it was like, hang on, this is some guy is saying something that's not in these airport bookshop books. And I was really excited. And now I get it. There's basically two different markets. There's the popular market and then the more niche market for people who want to go deeper. And I'm not saying the popular market's wrong. What it is, is a narrow case reality truth that works in most circumstances. It's the extreme small and extreme large where it blows up. And you're a sample size of one. Your life is a sample size of one. And the odds of you hitting a blow-up period are pretty high. You just have to decide what you want. And most of them will just kind of overlook it and say, oh yeah, they told me I have to invest for the long-term. The fact that I'm down 30, 40, 50% my portfolio, they told me that was the risk, but I'm in it for the long term. And they don't really think about it. They don't think, wow, asymmetric compounding of wealth. I just incurred a 50% drawdown. 
And that took three years to occur. And now I'm going to have to double my money in order just to get back to even. So let's take the 2000 example, the 2000 top. That was 12 years for the passive index to get back to even. Now let's say that you're retired and you've got a conventional financial planning assumption of 4% rule. So you're pulling 4% of your portfolio per year. That means 12 years later, not accounting for inflation, by the way, we still haven't thrown that in, right? We're just trying to break even from the drawdown. 12 years later, the S&P 500 magically goes back to break even because of the inexorable compounding of the source of return behind it, right? As we talked about earlier, that goes back to even, but through volatility effects and through the drawdown as a retiree, your portfolio is down over 50%. So the market went back to even exactly as the pundits would tell you. The market climbed to new highs. Congratulations. Meanwhile, you're sitting on a portfolio that's down more than 50% because you're a retiree with a 4% safe withdrawal rate. And so what are you going to do? You're going to change your life. And I didn't even account for inflation in there. Let's say you're throwing inflation rate at another 3%. You're down on your purchasing power. What are we doing? Seven times 12 years. So 84%, 84% loss of purchasing power. During that drawdown, go through that once or twice and you tell me you feel safe. And I'm just playing loose with the numbers, right? I mean, it's actually worse in reality because you've got expenses, you've got compound effects, you got the volatility effects. There's all kinds of stuff going on in there. So are they wrong? No, they're not wrong. The market did come back. 12 years later, the market went to new highs exactly as they promised. And there's reasons why that has occurred in the past and will continue to occur in the future exactly as promised. There's a reason why it works that way. Okay. That doesn't mean it's good. That doesn't mean it's smart. And if you're 75 when it occurs, you're probably stuffed. Yeah, exactly. See, here's the thing. You're taught that you have, here's another truth. You're asking for truths, right? So you're taught that you have a long-term horizon of 20 to 30 years. It has to do with the math of the source of returns, right? Which is dividends plus economic growth, plus or minus change in market valuation. That's the source of return for stock market. So what happens is the dividends plus the economic growth has this inexorable small compounding and the size of it depends on when your starting point is and what the valuations of the market's worth, the starting point. Again, notice I'm bringing the concept of valuations again. That's the inexorable compounding. Then you've got this huge tail that wags the dog, which is plus or minus change in market valuations. That's why the markets are so volatile. They'll swing up 30% one year, down 50% the next year, up 25% the next year. They're going all over the place. But then 10, 15 years later, you've got this compound effect of 7%, 8%, whatever the number is. But you had this wild ride to get there. And so you're told you have to have this long-term time horizon for your expectations for investing, but the reality is different, okay? The reality is you have a series of 10 and 15-year periods throughout your lifetime emphasized at the 10 to 15 years before you retire and the 10 to 15 years after you retire. The 10 to 15 years after you retire is called sequence of returns risk, and there's actually a name for it. And it shows that if you have adverse returns, during the 10 to 15 years after you retire, that it does such a mess to the math of your distribution that you actually have a lower safe withdrawal rate. So safe withdrawal rates will vary anywhere from 3% to 12%, depending on your sequence of returns risk immediately after you retire. So everybody is actually a market timer by birthright. They just don't know it. Well, as it turns out, the same thing is true for the 10 to 15 years before you retire. It's just the inverse of the picture. 
Because if you have an adverse sequence of returns for the 10 to 15 years before you retire, you can retire with a half or a quarter as much money as you assumed. Because in your retirement planning, you assume this nice, steady compound growth of seven or 8%. You're assuming that's what's going to occur in your modeling. But what will actually occur is a conventional passive portfolio will grow in fits and spurts. So it looks more like a staircase where you'll go through 10, 15 year periods where there's very low returns, then a 10, 15 year period where it has high returns and it averages out long-term over this seven, 8% compounded. Those staircase effects are due to valuation effects where you've got a sudden ramp up in valuations, then the markets work off the valuations, then you get a ramp up in valuations again. And those periods or epochs as they change, if one occurs immediately before or after you retire, it can mess up all your planning. And so they tell you you have to have a long-term time horizon, but in fact, what you're really dealing with is you have to have positive expectancy and reliable turns over all 10, 15-year time windows, particularly those immediately preceding and immediately following retiring. And the biggest factor that influences that is the year in which you were born, which is something that you have no control over whatsoever. Bingo. What this is making me think is if there are all these problems with financial planning and financial modeling, these same problems have got to occur in so many other disciplines where people are just going straight to the data, building models, not taking into account the truths of whatever the domains their models are in. And it seems like if you're saying that for finance, people need to take a step back and work out what the truths are first, I would say that data scientists in any discipline need to take a step back and work out what the truths of whatever the discipline they're working in are first, and then build their models based on those truths. Yeah, it can go both ways. You just have to be careful, right? So like one of the things AI is doing right now is it's just deep diving into data and trying to discern what possible truths may exist. So we can go back to, we talked about biotech recently. AI is diving into these massive biodatabases like UK has one because they have a public health system. So they have these large databases from the public health system and they're trying to train AI on them and figure out what truths can be figured out from it. But ultimately you have to be able to go backwards on it, if you will. So yeah, you can use the AI to ferret out what may be something valid, but ultimately you have to run it by somebody that truly knows the field to understand if it's actually telling you a nuance of something else before you actually put it into practice. So yeah, ultimately I think you need somebody with deep expertise in the field to filter what the math tells you and give you the nuanced truth of it. Kind of like I was trying to do here in this interview, I was trying to show a lot of the nuances behind a lot of this stuff. Because what the AI is at the end of the day is it's just pattern recognition and you can have a pattern happening over a short period of time. But as you said, those patterns aren't necessarily going to continue into the future. Yeah. Again, you're always dealing with data limitations. So like the AI I'm most familiar with is the language models because I'm a writer and that's the one that's most popular right now. And one of the most developed, at least that I'm aware of, you know, in my mind, it's just, you know, it's computerized plagiarism and it's limited to the information it's trained on. So there's no genuine expertise on it. All it's doing is parenting back from the patterns in what the language shows about it, but it's limited to what's there. There's no generation of actual knowledge in it, you know, so you're never going to be 
better off with it than you with, with the genuine knowledge expert. That's what I tell my students. Do not use chat GPT unless you understand what you're asking it, because otherwise it'll give you a wrong answer and you won't realize it. You are better off just doing the research yourself. Yeah. And it can be a great research tool. There's all kinds of ways to use it wisely. I'm not against it. Uh, I do think a really interesting area is going to be copyright violation, at least with large language models. That's got to be figured out. I mean, you're seeing it with, you know, the Hollywood strikes and everything else going on is there's a real problem with intellectual property with this now, because it is not citing source and it is not paying to source based on the value derived from that source. And so it's just basically a big ripoff. And people are getting very angry and suing and rightly so. Yeah. I mean, as an author of books, I don't want it going in and pattern recognizing my material and parenting it back out. You can pay for that access. That's only fair. That's what intellectual property law is for. That's why it was created. Otherwise, why would I create it? It's an extraordinary amount of work to create this stuff. And yeah, I fully support that. So is there anything on your radar in the AI data and analytics space that you think is going to become important in the next three to five years? Well, we just hit it. Copyright law with applied to large language models, I think is going to be a game changer, right? Because how can you apply AI and defend copyright? I don't know how you do that. And what are we going to do? Just throw away copyright protection? How, how do you do that and not destroy the creation of viable material that when, because you're destroying the incentive to create it, you know, it's like, are we going to throw away patent rights on drugs? I mean, there's so much invested up front. You have to protect that intellectual property so that there's a payout down the road to justify the effort to create it. And so you can't just have AI trained on the latest, greatest information out there and violate all the copyrights. There's no precedent for that. And there's a reason why those copyrights exist. So there's got to be something done for that. Otherwise, there'll be a fundamental change in society around publishing of information to keep it away from large language models. I mean, I would literally have to put everything behind paywalls and keep it out. You can't allow public domain access to information because there's no value proposition once AI can take it. I mean, it literally changes the creator's incentive package. Or everything that is out there just becomes a mashup of everything that existed prior to these models coming well, out. Well, that's another thing that's really fascinating is we've gotten really close to it already, right? So in my space, in the financial space, you've got a really interesting phenomenon of Google results, right? So Google is a very early user of AI and its rankings, but you've also got a thing of, they call it EAT criteria, right? Which is expertise, authority, and I can't remember the thing for T, but it's it's an acronym, EAT. It's used specifically for the medical and financial space because it's considered a risk to humans to have bad information. And so they have human screeners that screen how sites rank based on the expertise and authority of the authors. So they've actually had to bring humans into there for the top ranks because you know otherwise there's no way to know what's genuinely authoritative versus just popular. And so now all of a sudden, the cost to produce authoritative sites goes to zero. Because anybody can train an AI bot based on models around search rankings to mimic, but then you already got it right now. If you look at the search rankings for financial content for Google, they're terrible. And I'm not trying to insult Google. It used to be really good, but in the past several years, you look at the top 10 rankings and it's very generic and they're very consistent because what happens is everybody models whatever the top is 
using what's known about the algorithm and all the content starts looking similar because they're all trying to compete for the same top three rankings, which is where all the traffic is. The only time you find anything interesting is when you go past two through 10. You have to start diving deep to find anything unique or different because all the top rankings are gamed. And so now it's going to get multiplied worse because now you're going to have the AI bots producing the content way more intelligently than freelance writers ever did. And what happened now, you've got all the large corporate sites are all dominating the rankings because they had the business model and the money to fund large freelance writer staffs to produce professional quality content that's completely generic with no actual expertise because they're journalism majors. They're not finance experts. And so they would produce just reams and mountains of this content. And they build these huge authoritative sites for these large corporations, which then dominate the rankings. And you end up with this, all this generic crap content that actually has no genuine expertise in it. It's all written for the rankings and Google's playing right into it. Now you're going to have AI bots that are messing the whole thing up even worse. And I think ultimately my personal opinion, Google tried to do it before and they backed off from it is they did actual author algorithms. And I think they're ultimately going to have to, they're going to have to go back and identify authors, identify expertise, and then rank based on author expertise. Ultimately, they're going to have to, otherwise the AI bots just game the whole thing. And anybody can throw up an expertise, a site, a massive complex site of great expertise with nothing more than an editor and an AI bot. The cost and value of content is going to go down to zero. You see it already being advertised, these services that will actually basically produce massive quantities of content for your site that, from what I can gather, has absolutely no value whatsoever. But then you look at somebody like me that has the genuine expertise. So I go to create the content. It takes me a long time to produce a quality article. Am I going to publish it in its entirety on the web for free so the AI bots can then harvest it? Of course not. That makes no sense. As long as they're allowed to plagiarize, I'm going to have to put a teaser piece of the article up to establish the interest, establish the expertise, and put the rest of the article behind some sort of membership closure in order to keep it from the AI bots getting to it and plagiarizing it. It's going to completely change the structure of the internet. Otherwise, why would I publish it? The AI bots are just going to steal it and plagiarize it and republish it as their own. Yeah. And so everyone ends up suffering as a result of it. So what final advice would you give to data scientists looking to create business value from data? I think we've covered a lot of it. I think you just have to really understand what's knowable and what's forever unknowable. To get really business value, you need domain expertise, as we referred to, and you need to develop that. So I would probably do, if your background's data science, I would probably try to bring data science to a company that isn't using that resource very well. And then you try to get to where you're working at the top level with the top level executives, bringing in a data science arm and see if you can really get a strong mentoring in the business principles. So you could take it and apply it out as a business of your own, you know, so you can get a quick run at the financial truce, if you will, using my domain expertise as an example. But as you said, it could apply to plumbing. It could apply to water science. It could apply to electrical. I mean, it can apply to any field. Yeah. I think you just really got to understand that data science is incredibly valuable skill and there's limits. You're not dealing with absolute engineering truth. You have to understand the nuance of the application, I guess, is the piece I'd leave you with. 
I mean, that's the main thing I've seen in my students that are hardcore scientists and hardcore engineers that come to me. I, they follow a really clear pattern every time I have to wean them of what I call the engineer's fallacy. They'll come in and they'll go on Allocate Smartly, and there's this place where you can build optimized portfolios using pure math and quant. And it's built right in the platform, and it's so easy to do. And they think they're so smart, right? And so they build these optimized portfolios, and then they get to the next lesson and explains why none of that works. Why you cannot do that, and it will not work going forward. And now I have enough time period since I wrote those lessons that all of it's proven true. You can look at the actual data since then, and had you optimized your portfolios based on the data back in 2021 or 2020, when those lessons were written, what would have worked then and worked best on history did not work at all going forward. Whereas the stuff that I greenlined in there has worked very well going forward. Is it optimum? Is it perfect? No, but I never promised anybody that. What I said in the lessons is you're not shooting for the optimal portfolio of the past, which is what data science, hardcore data science will give you. That will give you the optimal portfolio of the past. What you're actually searching for is the portfolio that has the highest probability of performing well in the future. Those are very different questions that you ask. And it's going to be the same in any profession. I'm just applying it to portfolio because that's my expertise. On that note, for listeners who want to learn more about you or get in contact, what can they do? Financialmentor.com. So I have social media channels, but I don't do anything with them. My assistant runs them for me. You know, I'm just not a social media guy. So everything's email and everything's on the website. And I have several books, which you had mentioned a couple of the two most popular leverage equation and how much money do I need to retire? And then I have a course. Uh, my master course is expectancy wealth planning. And then in there is also where I teach all the use of tactical asset allocation as part of your paper assets. But it's much bigger than that because it's also about principles in real estate and principles in business entrepreneurship, which those are the three asset classes you use to build wealth. And then it goes through and it integrates all the personal with it about how you design your own personalized wealth plan. And so that's my master course. And then there's the books, which are the low price entry point. And then there's free stuff too, which is the newsletter, the public facing newsletter and all the free content on the site. And I have a huge suite of financial calculators, which are free too. Because again, all wealth is math right? So we'll come full circle, right? You have to know financial truths, but you also have to know the math truths. So all wealth is math, right? It's the expectancy equation and it's the future value equation. And so how do you work with those? How do you combine them with your personal life situation and your resources, your skills, your timeline, your goals? How do you integrate that all into a wealth plan that's actually going to work for you in this lifetime? And that's what the expectancy wealth planning course figures out for you. Well, Thank you for joining me today. Yeah, hopefully that wasn't too much of a fire hose. I hope that was enjoyable. I loved it. So okay, yeah, good. I hope all of our listeners loved it too. <laughs> and for those in the audience, thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and this has been Value Driven Data Science brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting.